Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief for November 20th, 2022. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I'm going to, uh, a couple of programming notes, I guess, to start with. First of all, uh, if you're following along with the Mass Casualty Commission and uh, probably some of my viewers and listeners have been, uh, you might know that there's been some news this week. I'm going to cover some of it, the, the Onslow Belmont uh, situation, fire hall situation, that shooting was the subject of some news, but there's also uh, the closing submissions, the written submissions from all of the parties, all the participants have now been posted to the Mass Casualty Commission website. I've started scanning through them. I'm going to do a special video uh, just on those closing submissions because it shows how the different participants uh, view the evidence that have been brought before the commissioners and just sort of shows their positioning. And of course, some of this is gonna have some influence on the final outcome, uh, the final report from the commissioner. So I'm gonna cover some of those in a special uh, standalone uh, Mass Casualty Commission uh, episode, uh, probably middle of the week, uh, hopefully a little earlier than that, but we'll see. And uh, the second thing, uh, those uh, thanks for everybody who's uh, purchased uh, and read some of uh, Deficits of Trust, which is my uh, final report on the Mass Casualty Commission and the events of the Mass Casualty in the uh, ebook. I've covered the events themselves, uh, what we know, and constructed, I think, a, a pretty reliable narrative and timeline of uh, the events as they unfolded over the 13 hours. Talked about uh, Gabriel Wartman and then talked about the Mass Casualty Commission itself. So uh, I've covered that in the ebook. The first 15%, which is a little more than the introduction in some of the early pages of the, the Gabriel Wartman analysis, that's available as sort of a free preview of the book. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, do sort of an audio book version of that, uh, which really is going to involve me reading the first uh, bit, the introduction. I'll do that as a YouTube video. I'll post it as a podcast. So if people are interested in that and there seems to be some good feedback from it, then perhaps I'll do the entire uh, book uh, as a uh, as an audio book. So people like to consume their media in different ways. Some people like to read. Uh, some people like to watch the videos. Some people like to listen to podcasts if they're in their car, if they're out for a run or doing things around the home. So uh, I'm going to try to be accommodating to all of those different uh, ways to consume the content. And uh, we'll, so we'll see. We'll see if that uh, if that is something that is uh, enticing to people, then I'll, I'll continue on. Uh, so this week has been an interesting week. Uh, I've been uh, working, doing some work with um, Friends United, Rolf Baumann, who's a real estate developer, originally from Germany, immigrated here 35 or so years ago, but he's a major supporter of uh, First Nations artists, indigenous art, and has a uh, international conference center just outside of Port Hawkesbury. Many people don't know about it, but uh, it's gaining in prominence. Anyway, over this last week and then over the next few days, we've been doing the second uh, annual uh, reconciliation talks, is what they're called. And these are interviews, uh, discussions, conversations uh, hosted by Nancy Regan, who many people would remember, of course, from her days at Live at Five, uh, who's just a fantastic uh, leader of discussions and uh, interviewer and so she's been speaking with some of the artists including uh, Loretta Gould who people will recognize from the art at the departure lounge or the departure area at the Halifax International Airport there's like a 400 foot 
uh, by eight foot uh, display area of her art there. And uh, so s artists, uh, chiefs, uh, political leaders, including former premiers, uh, Stephen McNeil, Ian Rankin, and Rodney McDonald, other uh, local leaders, uh, wardens and such. So it's a really fascinating series of interviews, but it's been a busy time as well. I've been uh, participating in the interviews as well. One in particular, this is the reason I brought it up, is one in particular involves uh, a, a discussion about Donald Marshall Jr. and his impact, uh, his impact in the sort of legal community, but also on the wider community. And so it's Nancy Regan, myself, and hereditary Chief Stephen Augustine. And uh, Chief Augustine is uh, the head of the Unamagi College at uh, Cape Breton University. Hereditary chief, which uh, means he, he's sort of a spiritual advisor to the elected band chiefs uh, throughout uh, throughout Big Moggy, and uh, so a really fascinating guy. And no, he knew uh, Donald Marshall personally, and uh, so some interesting stuff there. I I say that so those that aren't familiar with Donald Marshall, I guess uh, just very quickly. I mean, there's the Marshall Inquiry, which really uh, was a turning point for. Uh, criminal justice in Nova Scotia changed the way criminal prosecutions are handled, identified the racism that existed in the system at that time. This was the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, the inquiry report came out in 89. But not only was it the impetus of that, but he was then also uh, fined for uh, fishing eels in Pompkin Harbor and led to Supreme Court of Canada decisions that sort of... Uh, re-established or, or sort of redefined the Aboriginal fishing rights in uh, Canada. So that was a major, uh, a major impact there, which really hasn't been fully realized yet, but that's, there's work taking place on that. And then he was also involved in one of the first uh, serious sentencing circles, and so was sort of a, a trailblazer when it comes to restorative justice sort of principles being adopted into uh, courts in Nova Scotia and thus in Canada. So, really interesting. I'd uh, recommend uh, Jane McMillan's book. Jane McMillan was uh, Donald Marshall Jr.'s partner for a time. Actually, was fishing with him that day in uh, Pompkit, and uh, they were just they were just trying to get by at the time. Uh, she's a really good author, very uh, well written. Truth and Conviction is the name of the book. So, I'd highly recommend that to people that are interested. And uh, keep an eye out over the coming weeks and months for these videos that are emerging from Friends United as well. Quite a, a, a fascinating project, really interesting discussions. All right, so that's, uh, that's an introduction. Today I'm going to be covering, as I do, I, tend to, I, I try to cover in these videos stories that have been in the news across the country, most sometimes focused on Nova Scotia, but things with a national impact as well. And uh, this week I'm going to talk about um, five things. One is the Onslow-Belmont report. Uh, which is from the Mass Casualty Commission. Mass Casualty Commission is just releasing more and more documents, uh, even though the hearings wrapped up um, geez, a couple months ago now. And so that's been uh, on, an ongoing situation, and the, that was in the news this week. Second thing is going to be the Court of Appeal in Nova Scotia uh, wrote to the Bar Society about some adjournments, so I'll talk about that uh, issue that they're having with the Court of Appeal. The third thing is an a doctor from Amherst who has been charged with sexual assault uh, has had his charges stayed with some very serious allegations against uh, one of the prosecutors involved in those cases. So we're going to talk about that. 
Nova Scotia Power. We've had some power outages uh, lately in Nova Scotia, and uh, I saw uh, Nicole uh, Nizdowski was tweeting about this and got a lot of response. So I just wanted to pick up on some of the things she was talking about on Twitter with uh, Nova Scotia Power, the Nova Scotia Power Privatization Act from the early 90s. And then finally, I'm going to talk about the uh, This Week in the Emergencies Act inquiry. We've been hearing lots of factual things over the last few weeks. This week, it got into some legal analysis with uh, the Prime Minister's National Securities Advisor, Jody Thomas. So I'm going to come back and finish with, uh, with the Emergencies Act inquiry. All right, so uh, story number one, the Onslow-Belmont uh, report. And what came up was a memo from uh, an internal RCMP report, which is the Hazardous Occurrence Investigation Team, Hoyt, uh, and uh, this memo was from January of 2021. So, a long time ago, before the evidence started at the inquiry, yet we're just getting this uh, disclosed now after all of the proceedings are done, so that's a problem in itself. The report, the memo was talking about the Onslow Belmont Fire Hall. And for those that don't recall, or just a quick refresher, what happened there was these two officers stopped well short of the fire hall and their evidence said that they thought they saw the killer, Gabriel Wartman, standing in front of the fire hall uh, next to an RCMP vehicle. They opened fire on the uh, fire hall. Uh, fortunately, uh, they missed. The, the shots missed by wide margin in some cases, not so wide in others, but missed. Uh, so nobody was physically injured, but there's been great impacts from that. People inside uh, were traumatized as a result of it. And uh, the there was a report from the Serious Incident Response Team, the Nova Scotia entity that investigates any time that an RCMP officer is involved in potential criminal activity or, or shootings. And so CERT uh, did a report here, cleared the two officers, Terry Brown and Dave Melanson, of the, any liability, a criminal liability in that case. And this uh, hazardous occurrence investigation team memo is critical of the CERT uh, conclusions. And many others have been, including myself, have been critical of the CERT conclusions there. Uh, I mean, CERT cleared the officers of any wrongdoing. It seems clear to me that they were... Uh, way too far back. There's disputes over. They said they yelled out a warning or they tried to uh, give a warning. Nobody else agrees with that. And uh, so there are a number of issues with uh, with what what they did there and uh, just the fact that they took those shots without uh, really having a clear understanding of what was happening. So uh, CERT had used a consultant from British Columbia, this Joel Johnston, and the Hoyt report, the RCMP internal report, said that this uh, Johnston uh, report itself was inaccurate. There was lots of inaccuracies involved there. And actually, uh, Justice Cacchione, uh, head of CERT himself at the time, had some uh, concerns with uh, Joel Johnston, hasn't used him as a consultant since then, uh, yet and ended up clearing the officers in that case. So this is just a memo. It's not the final uh, Hoyt report, but uh, that report is underway. It's not yet finished. We heard lots through the Mass Casualty Commission uh, proceedings that these there were these internal RCMP, you know, investigatory processes taking place, but none of the reports have been prepared. This one has not been prepared. 
Uh, Chris Marshall from the RCMP, uh, when asked by the media this week, said that the RCMP may uh, share the report. Uh, that uh, I take it to mean that they will not share that report unless they are uh, court-ordered or uh, similar to do so. Um, but we'll see. Uh, and if they do, I suspect that'll be critical of the two officers involved. The other thing is, of course, the Mass Casualty Commission, when they release their report at the end of March, uh, will be no doubt examining this uh, situation and likely also to criticize the officers. But we'll see. I mean, they, we, we have no idea what the Mass Casualty Commission is going to conclude about anything. But if they took a fair reading of the evidence, I think they'll be critical not only of the officers, but also of the uh, CERT report, which cleared them. So we'll see. And if anything uh, serious comes out of the Mass Casualty Commission report or the Hoyt report, I wouldn't be surprised if um, some disciplinary action was taken against those officers. So we'll stay tuned on that one. Okay. Uh, and as I said, uh, more to come later in the week on the Mass Casualty Commission uh, closing uh, written submissions. Okay, second story, out of the Court of Appeal. This was uh, reported Tuesday in all Nova Scotia. The, the Court of Appeal, in a very unusual move, wrote to the Nova Scotia Barrister Society saying there have been too many adjournments in uh, September and October and that it was having a serious effect on the court and that it raised some ethical issues uh, within the legal profession, which it does. So there were 12 appeals adjourned in September and October which represented a third of the cases before the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal, of course, hears criminal cases, family law cases, civil law cases, all, all sorts of things. Uh, so the, now, in criminal cases, of course, uh, delay, well, in civil cases too, but in criminal cases more so, uh, delay has been identified by the Supreme Court of Canada as a serious issue, and uh, this uh, Jordan case before the Supreme Court of Canada set hard deadlines in different levels of court. That doesn't apply to appeals. That's not the issue. It's not the delay that's the problem with these adjournments. It's that it's, well, it's annoying for the judges. I guess it's more, more than that. I mean, they, so appeals, in a sense, if you've ever been to the Court of Appeal and watched one, they may seem like they're fairly brief affairs. I mean, you go in as a lawyer, and I've been to the Court of Appeal uh Lots of times I, I enjoy doing appeals. You go in and you, you give a presentation, which might be 20 minutes long, might be a half an hour. It's not going to be too long, typically. Uh, Supreme Court of Canada, it's even shorter, actually, in many cases. So, uh, And then you have a 40-page factum. So in a sense, it's very brief, but there's a lot of work for the judges. The judges, so when you file an appeal, you have to do so within 30 days, typically. And then you have to order a transcript of the trial and you have to provide the transcript and all of the evidence that was in the trial to the Court of Appeal. So they, the judges, need to review everything that happened at the trial. They need to read through the transcript. They need to review the evidence. They need to review the factums from both parties and, you know, start thinking things over before they get to the, uh, to the actual Court of Appeal hearing itself. So there's a great deal of work that happens in the months leading up to an appeal. And so when it gets adjourned, you know, in the weeks or days ahead of an appeal, all of that time that was used by the judges to prepare for that, well, it's, wa it's wasted in a sense. Uh, you know, it's like studying for an exam. You, yes, you do the work throughout, but you then prepare heavily close to the end towards the, 
the time you're writing the exam. And so that intense preparation, it, you can't just replicate that if you have the, you know, or so you, you have to replicate that if the appeal is then heard, you know, three or four months time. You can't just rely on something you thought about or you read, you know, months ago. You're going to have to do it again. So it's a real waste of time for the Court of Appeal, and uh, there's, it's precious time. And so it's, uh, anyway, extraordinary. Now, I, there was uh, an indication in the All Nova Scotia article that the issue was uh, transcription services in Nova Scotia. And I know that there's, you know, there's only so many people transcribing trials, but uh, typically, so when you when you get an appeal, one of the first things you do is you have to supply a certificate of readiness as the lawyer. So what that means is you have to be able to certify that not only have you, you have a copy of the order and the of the decision, but you've ordered the transcript and have been told by the transcription service roughly when the transcription will be ready. And so if the transcription of the trial is going to be ready in May, well, they're not going to schedule the appeal in May or June. They'll schedule it in the months later. So it uh, doesn't really hold up to me that the transcription would be the, the reason here, but uh, perhaps. Anyway, there is an ethical responsibility lawyers have to navigate cases in a, a timely and efficient manner. So um, nobody's been uh, disciplined for that, but that letter, uh, if things continue, um, wouldn't be surprised if if individual lawyers perhaps or if cases get dismissed if they're, if they're not ready to go. So uh, that was an unusual thing. I thought it would be interesting to bring to people's attention. Okay, second story. That was the uh, second story. Third story is this uh, doctor out of Amherst, uh, Fasheranti, and by the, uh, there's a decision uh, released from uh, Judge Bejin out of uh, Truro Provincial Court. By the way, you can get these decisions on the Courts of Nova Scotia website, and really interesting decision. So what Judge Brejanda has done at the request of the prosecution is he's stayed the charges. But uh, what that means is they're on hold. And you can stay charges for up to a year. Um, sometimes done if, uh, you know, the Crown's just not sure if they're going to pursue the charge. And they just want to, all right, we'll just put that on hold. We don't need, there's no court date scheduled. It's just... The charge is, is stayed and it's in limbo. The person is not acquitted. The charge can be brought back at any time. So in this case, so yes, uh, the doctor, Dr. Uh, Fasheranti has three charges of sexual assault from uh, 2021. But uh, the issue was the prosecutor for those charges... Mary Ellen Nurse, back in 2004, had represented a fourth woman who was, uh, had a civil case alleging sexual assault against the same doctor. And at that time, uh, Ms. Nurse had written to the RCMP saying, what are you doing about this sexual assault case? Do you have it in a file? Are you laying charges? Because, of course, if the RCMP was laying charges, that would give a lot of leverage for the civil claim. So she was interested in what's the RCMP doing. Okay, a uh, couple of years later, Ms. Nurse becomes a Crown Prosecutor and has been since. Well, now she's involved in the prosecution of sexual assault charges against this very same individual. And 
There's an allegation that she uh, either pressured or guided the RCMP to then go back to 2004 and look at that other incident and lay charges based on that historical uh, account. So, uh, Dr. Fasteranti's lawyer, uh, Stan McDonald uh, out of Halifax, who, by the way, is definitely top three uh, criminal defense lawyers in the province, if, uh, if not better than that. Uh, Stan, uh, he's, he, he's great at this, and he's been around for a while. And uh, so whenever, whenever you see his name attached to a case, actually Judge Beijing, I would say the same thing. Whenever you see their names attached to a case, you can have confidence that they, they have something there. Uh, it's not just uh, throwing something against the wall to see that it'll stick. So the question is, uh, in this case, so what Stan McDonald is asking the court to order, had asked the court to order was, the correspondence between the Crown Office and the RCMP about these charges to see if Miss Nurse had written the police to suggest charges or to discuss them. Well, the Crown said those that correspondence is all covered by solicitor-client privilege and should not be disclosed. Well, so that was the application. Should that disclosure, should those letters, any correspondence, emails back and forth, be disclosed to the defense and judge Beijing said yes uh, there this is extraordinary circumstances normally that wouldn't uh, be disclosed it's would be solicitor client privilege litigation privilege there's there's different reasons why that wouldn't be disclosed but in this case because it's so unusual because the same lawyer was involved years ago and seems to be involved again in the similar situation that there could be an abusive process there so there's an abusive process application hearing scheduled for December, December 13th and 14th. And in the meantime, what the judge ordered is that the Crown needs to disclose all of that correspondence, not directly to the defense, but to the judge. The judge will review and see what can then be disclosed to the defense so that the defense can use that information in the, uh, in the application to see whether there was indeed an abusive process. So, abuse of process, not abusive process. So that'll be something to watch. I wouldn't be uh, surprised if the Crown just decides to withdraw all of the charges against uh, Dr. Fasteranti, uh, though if they're considered serious enough, and I don't know the details of the allegations, uh, then They'll probably go through all of these steps and see if uh, see what the judge orders and see if the abuse of process application is successful. I suspect what just based on what Judge Bezin said in his reasons that if there's correspondence to the effect of Mary Ellen Nurse saying to the RCMP, "Hey, you should charge uh, this doctor based on this information that I know about from 2004," then all of those charges will be withdrawn uh, by the court as a the consequence of that uh, abuse of process. Okay, so we'll keep an eye on that. We'll uh, see what happens in mid-December on that one and uh, follow up. Uh, next story is uh, just, a, just a brief comment on the Nova Scotia Power Privatization Act uh, from 1992 when under the Cameron government the uh, Nova Scotia Power was privatized to knock off a lot of uh, debt, uh, accumulated debt from the provincial balance sheet. Anyway, uh, 
so in that act, Nicole uh, Nizdowski, whose his brother was tragically killed at a Nova Scotia power site, and there's lots of uh, issues there on liability about who was responsible, workplace uh, incident, and uh, so sounds like protocols were simply not followed there, and his death could have been easily avoided had they been. Uh, so she was going through the Nova Scotia Power Privatization Act and pointed out some sections. Uh, the last one is the one I want to talk about, but I'll go through the one she's pointed out. One is 15, section 15 subs 2 and 3, which is that Nova Scotia Power does not pay federal income tax. So they are charged federal income tax, but we, the taxpayers, pay it for them. All right, that's one. Uh, section 18 sub 2 is that the Nova Scotia Power does not pay municipal taxes either, except for deed transfer taxes when they uh, buy and sell land. Third one was uh, Section 19 sub 3, that Nova Scotia Power can expropriate land. They're, they have the same rights as the government does. If Nova Scotia Power needs a certain tract of land in order to, you know, put power lines through or whatever they need to do, they have the power to expropriate land. Now, when you expropriate land, you are obligated to pay fair market value to the owner, uh, but it's still an extraordinary power for a non-government entity to possess. All right, but the, the one I wanted to talk about for a second is Section 23, which is the limitation on liability. And it says, and I'm going to quote it, it says, uh, in respect, so they, are, they have no liability in respect of any delay, interruption, or failure. So a partial or total failure of power. Okay, quote, where such damages are caused by something which is beyond the ability of the company to control by reasonable and practicable effort. All right, so what does that mean? Uh, damages are caused by something which is beyond the ability of the company to control by reasonable and practicable effort. Well, you can't control the weather, but you can control how you build the system to withstand predictable weather. So, of course you're gonna have weather. So I say that should what it should mean is weather that is predictable, that is uh, sort of ordinary for, the, for Nova Scotia to withstand, the power system should be able to withstand predictable weather and secondly, I would say that it should mean that Nova Scotia Power, their performance standards in terms of uh, being, a, you know, power outages and such, uh, should be comparable to other coastal power providers, uh, you know, up and down the coast of the United States, uh, east and west coast. You know, see what other uh, power companies are doing, what their performance is like, and compare that to Nova Scotia Power. If the if the gap is significant, I'd say Nova Scotia Power uh, should have some liability, even under that limited uh, wording. Now, the other thing is, if that wording is too vague, or if it seems to be being interpreted in a, a loose way or a non-restrictive way by the UARB, then it's always open to the government to adjust that language to specify certain standards. Uh, so that's always something that uh, can be done. And um, anyway, we'll see. We'll see if there's any public pressure to do so. But I thought that was an interesting look at Nova Scotia Power's Privatization Act. All right, last thing. Uh, I'll cover this quickly, which is the Emergencies Act inquiry. Uh, some really interesting week, and this was. Uh, you know, I, I didn't watch everything um, sort of blow by blow this week because I was. Uh, 
quite occupied with the, the Friends United stuff, but the National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, uh, Ms. Jody Thomas, the uh, Security Advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau, was uh, testifying about uh, what the legal standard is in this Emergency Act inquiry. So the, the whole question behind the inquiry was whether the Emergencies Act was necessary to invoke. And earlier, before Ms. Thomas testified, we heard from Brenda Lucky, the head of the RCMP, that the RCMP had a plan to address the protest without the Emergency Act powers. Now, we haven't seen that plan, and apparently the cabinet, the federal cabinet, didn't, wasn't provided the plan either, but uh, we're told it existed. Okay, that's one thing. Second is that uh, we heard from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, that the protest did not amount to a national security threat, in quotes, in their opinion. Okay, so the lawyer for the convoy says, well, that should determine the whole thing. And the reason why they say that is the way the Emergencies Act and the CSIS Act interact. And I'll explain. Okay, in the Emergencies Act, a public order emergency uh, is what, it's what the government needs to determine, whether there is a public order emergency. Because if there is a public order emergency, then you can invoke the act. Okay, so what is a public order emergency? Well, it says a public order emergency is an emergency that arises from threats to the security of Canada and that is so serious as to be a national emergency. All right, well, what does that mean? So what is a threat to the security of Canada? The Emergencies Act says, well, look to the CSIS Act for that definition. So the CSIS Act says a threat to the security of Canada is something that there's four, four possibilities. One, that it involves espionage or sabotage. Secondly, that it is foreign-influenced activities and they're clandestine or deceptive. Uh, thirdly, that they, are, they threaten or use uh, serious violence for political, religious, or ideological purposes. And fourth, that they're aimed at the, or the, there's some actions aimed at the overthrow of the democratically elected government. Okay, but it specifically says that these do not include lawful protests, advocacy, or dissent. So that's the question in this case. It, does the activity, does it fit one of those four things? And I think they're looking more particularly at C, that it's a threat or use of serious violence for political or ideological objectives. But that go, in other words, that go beyond a legitimate lawful protest. Well, I'm not sure that they're there, but... That's all still contained within the CSIS definition. We heard from CSIS that they didn't think, it was their opinion that it didn't meet that definition. Now, just because it's their opinion, CSIS's internal opinion that it didn't meet that, doesn't mean that the government needs to share that opinion. But, of course, they're going to have, have to be very persuasive if they're trying to, in effect, overrule uh, CSIS's own uh, internal conclusions. But I think they're looking at another piece of this, which is 
So when I said, what is a public order emergency? It's an emergency that arises from threats to the security of Canada. So arises from, so if it's, it almost, it makes me wonder if the government is going to try to do this interpretation, which is, okay, yes, there was some threats, uh, and threats to use violence. There wasn't really much actual violence, so threats to use violence, and that those threats then sort of blossomed into or mushroomed beyond that into this other broader, maybe less threatening, but certainly disruptive event. So I think they're going to really lean on those two words, arises from threats to the security of Canada. So we'll see. I'm not sure if that's what Miss Thomas was really getting at, or if so, it's a little bit of a stretch, but the words are there, and they are there to be stretched, I guess, in that sense. So uh, we'll see. But uh, I don't think, uh, I can see what she's saying. I don't find it persuasive myself, uh, but... Uh, Justice Rouleau may, and that's the opinion that counts. Well, and the people of Canada, their opinion counts as well. So we'll see if that's, uh, if people find that persuasive. Uh, but there is something there. It's not just a matter of, well, if CISA says so, that's the conclusion. The government can look a little bit beyond that opinion, and certainly they're motivated to do so if they're trying to justify the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Anyway. Okay, so that's, uh, that's great. That's it for today, uh, November 20th, uh, 2022. Hope everybody enjoyed that content. Uh, leave a comment, like, and subscribe. Share it with others. And uh, keep an eye out on the YouTube channel for those other programs, which I'm going to post this week. One being a review of the final submissions from the participants of the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia, and the other being chapter one, the, or sorry, the introduction to deficits of trust. So uh, until then, uh, thank you everybody for watching. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.